Last week, if you remember, we talked about the ability, the priority of every believer, of every believer to be involved in, in some form of discipleship and counseling. Um, and hopefully we took some of the, uh, the fear that might come with those words out of that. Uh, and we saw that uh, the confidence that we have in going about uh, this task and going about this ministry is not because of anything impressive about us, but is solely based on the confidence that we have in the faithfulness of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And the purpose of that message was to remove doubts uh, that this is something that we are incapable of, uh, to remove doubts about that, and to, and to, in fact, motivate us to raise our level of involvement, no matter where we are in this type of ministry, that, in fact, this is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Every Christian in the church engaged in, in various degrees of, of discipling and counseling, both ministering to others and receiving the ministry from others. This is a big part, a big part of what the faithful Christian life is composed of. But because we live in a culture uh, that so often defines success with the idea of results, whether it is worldly success or spiritual success, it all comes down to uh, these type of results, whether or not good things are happening to you. Are you healthy? Are you relatively free from concerns? Do people like you? Is everything in your family going well? Is there a general sense of peace in, in your life? For, for the most part, people, even many Christians, believe that the degree to which you can answer positively to those questions is the degree to which your life is going well and as it should. And if the answer to any of these types of questions is a no, then generally what we would describe as right living is defined by doing whatever it takes to get those things fixed, to get those working properly again. And when Christians begin gauging how life is going based on these categories... They're losing sight of what is truly important and they're failing to understand what God says that the successful Christian life will actually look like. So today I want to take a look at this uh, familiar passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-12. through 12, And I want to look at four characteristics that describe a Christian life lived in faithfulness. And you'll see those as the outline points in your bulletin. Four characteristics of a faithful Christian life. But before we get into that, we need to understand kind of the context of the book of 2 Corinthians. Specifically, we need to understand why Paul wrote this book. And, and when we understand that, it, it adds significance to what is being said here in these verses. So we learn in, in, from the ending of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, that's a letter that Paul wrote to address many issues going on in the Corinthian church. And I'm hoping you're a little bit at least familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians and, and what was going on there. Uh, it's a letter that he wrote to address many issues in, in the Corinthian church. And in, in the, towards the end, in chapter 16, uh, verses 10 and 11, we discover that, that Paul is going to be sending Timothy to the Corinthians. And what happened is apparently, this is kind of what we pieced together, apparently when Timothy arrived, he found that the church was in some sort of dismay, some sort of turmoil, uh, which was most likely due to the arrival of the false teachers that Paul is going to be mentioning frequently throughout this letter. And as we learn um, throughout the course of these letters, these false teachers intended to gain influence in the Corinthian church by assaulting the character of Paul and by questioning his authority. And when Paul hears of this, when Timothy returns and, and gives Paul this word, he immediately leaves his work in Ephesus and heads to Corinth to talk to them for himself. And he refers to this visit in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1. He calls it the painful visit. 
because of uh, apparently the Corinthians' acceptance of this false gospel and these false teachers and apparently their acceptance of their slander against Paul. Paul leaves Corinth after that and returns to Ephesus and writes a letter to the Corinthians, which is referred to in this letter as the severe letter. It's a letter that has uh, since been lost. Uh, We don't have access to it. We just know what uh, Paul says about it a little bit here. But he sends it with Titus now to the church in Corinth. And we find out in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians that when Paul met up with Titus, the report that Titus gave after he delivered the letter and comes back is a, is a good one. Uh, that indeed the church had apparently responded well for the most part and, and repented uh, in some way and affirmed their commitment to Paul and the gospel that Paul has preached. However, there are still apparently false apostles and false teachers in the city as is evident from much of what's said, especially in chapter 11. So, Paul writes this letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. And we need to know as we're reading it that one of the primary reasons he is writing this letter is that Paul is defending his apostleship from these false teachers. So that is really important to keep in mind here that this is one of the primary purposes for writing this book is Paul is defending himself. Because as we think through what Paul actually is is saying here, It's amazing to think that this would be considered defense of himself. As Christians, we typically don't and and we shouldn't give too much time to defending ourselves. But in Paul's case, it was important that the Corinthians recognize who he was and the authority from God that he had been given as an apostle because it was a gospel issue for them. And it was a matter of whether or not their church was founded on a true uh, foundation. But nevertheless, when Paul is forced to defend himself, he uses it as an opportunity to make much of God, to glorify God. This is not the typical way one defends themselves from slander. These false teachers came, we know about them, this is what we know about them, they came from outside the church. They were Jews who claimed to have a superior understanding of what following Jesus actually looked like. And you can tell from Paul's kind of sarcasm in 11.5 that these false teachers thought of themselves as some sort of more distinguished apostles or super apostles is what he calls them. Uh, Based on the content of the letter, it appears that the the false teaching that's coming is is mixed with kind of a, a syncretistic teaching. It's, it's mixed. It's elements of Christianity mixed with mysticism, mixed with elements of pagan Greek culture, and, and even mixed with some sexual immorality. And one of the primary things that they apparently, these false teachers apparently felt like they needed to do was to degrade Paul, to undermine his teaching and, and what he had established as he came in. So uh, they appealed to uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Travis just read, uh, they appealed to apparently letters of recommendation from, uh, we're not quite sure who they're from, but, but from them as someone as, as proof of their superiority, uh, possibly uh, teachers or leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, they pointed out that Paul's message wasn't worth as much. You see this in chapter 11, probably wasn't worth as much because he didn't charge for it. And apparently, from uh, chapter 5, verse 12, they called attention to their own physical appearance and, and pointed to Paul's physical p- appearance uh, as, a, as a reason to not listen to him. Essentially, they're just saying he's, he's kind of ugly. And we don't, we, why would you listen to that? Uh, and indeed, it's, it's actually believed that, that Paul was most likely not, not a very attractive person based on what he says about himself. And it, it seems evident that he, that he, that he suffered some um, physical, some sort of, some forms of physical deformities, probably a, a serious uh, eye issue. Uh, we know that he was beaten fairly regularly, which would cause a lot of physical deformities, also scarring and such. And in 10.10, in chapter 10, verse 10, we also see that they were making an issue of Paul as a weak speaker, saying sarcastic things about how essentially he sounds all tough in his letters, but in person, 
He's not much, is he? He's nothing. So, it is important to kind of have all of that understanding as we come into this text today. Because this text today will help us to understand even more that it is so important that we not be discouraged when things seem to be kind of failing according to worldly standards. Especially, especially as we engage in a life of faithful ministry. It is so important as you give your life to ministry that God has called the, the, the ministry that God has called you to, that, that you not expect proof of a faithful ministry to look like what the world tells you that anything successful should look like. Or even what the majority of Christians seem to be saying now in this in their kind of Christian self-help culture that they say success should look like. Success in this area does not look like uh, admiration or recognition or riches or health or nice things or even, or even comfort or peace with friends and family or to even to be free of pain or even to continue living. Now, faithfulness in the life of a Christian looks like faithful obedience in spite of the presence of any or all of those things. So, I want to take some time and I want to read another extended portion of Scripture to give us even more context leading up to this passage that we're going to be concentrating on this morning. I want to look at chapter, all of chapter 4, which is uh, so the, what comes before and what comes after uh, what we'll be focusing on. And um, as we look at chapter 4, I want you to take notice of of a few things, of, of who this says we are, of where our confidence lies, of what we are to be doing, and what we can expect. So, uh, look with me now at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, that whole ministry from chapter 3 that Travis just read from, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies." For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not in the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you can see already, as we read that passage, uh, you can see the contrast 
right there between the type of, of so-called Christian thinking today that, that tells us that if you are faithful, you can expect good things. If you, if you just have enough faith, things are going to go well in your life. I mean, look at that phrase in verse 1 that's also repeated in verse 16. He says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. You don't say something like that unless there's a temptation to lose heart. So apparently, the faithful ministry that Paul is talking about here is one in which there will be reasons to lose heart. And that prepares us for what we're about to talk about because now as we jump into our outline, you will notice that these characteristics that you have listed in your bulletin of a faithful Christian for the most part seem a little negative. And, and as we get into this, though, I also want to reemphasize the point that, that when I'm talking about faithful Christian living, we're going by the definition that we were talking about last week and, and, and actually that we consistently preach here at this church. Faithful Christian living means someone who is actively involved in the type of ministry that our Lord expects from us. It's not just coming to church when you can, having devotions when you have time, praying when you have problems, and watching slightly cleaner movies than other people. It's not faithful Christian living. It means being involved in faithful Christian ministry. What Paul is describing here is someone who is actively engaged in ministry to the body of Christ out of a love for the glory of God and a concern for His church. So, with that in mind, let's look at the first point in our outline. And just so you know, first two points are going to take up a good amount of the time. So with that in mind, look at the first point in our outline. The first characteristic of faithful Christian living is that you will be disregarded. Disregarded. You will be unnoticed or looked over. And, and this is what you should want. That's what we see in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul refers to us as clay jars or earthen vessels. The idea here is that we are pictured as something of little value that is used to carry something of infinite value. Right? We are of little value in order to emphasize that which is of much value. That, that word uh, there at the beginning of verse 7 where it says, but... That, that demonstrates a contrast between what's being said in verses 5 and 6, what immediately precedes it. In verse 5 and 6, Paul is emphasizing the fact that we are not proclaiming ourselves, but rather Christ Jesus is Lord. It is not about us. It's not about who we are. It's not about establishing some sort of credibility for ourselves. It's about proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he is talking about the treasure uh, in verse 7. Look at the treasure is this. We see it defined in, verses, uh, in verse 6. For God who said light, light shine out of darkness has shown in the hearts, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same God who created light, who called it into being, he's referencing Genesis 1 right there. That same God is the one who has revealed the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is, the kind, of, this is kind of a recap statement from all of chapter 3 and, and the beginning of chapter 4 where Paul is talking about the wonder of the new covenant, the wonder of the gospel, namely the, the message that every human being has rebelled against a holy God, the message that we just sang clearly about in, in all of those songs that we've sung today so far. God is perfectly holy and perfect in justice. And therefore, every sin we commit, whether it be uh, what we would consider a white lie or if it's just a, a lustful glance or hatred in our hearts or just a complaining and ungrateful attitude or, or doing anything else that God tells us not to do or, or failing to do the things that He commands us to. 
All of it, all of that is an offense or a rebellion against the infinite holiness and purity of an eternal God. And therefore, every single one of us has earned the just penalty of being cut off from Him forever and spending an eternity rightly enduring His just wrath in hell. Eternal punishment because of our rebellion against an eternal, infinite God. But God has shown us great kindness and mercy in Jesus Christ. He lived, Jesus lived a perfect life that we could never live, never failing once in word or thought or deed. And on the cross, He took the full punishment for our sins on Himself for all of those that would place their trust in Him. And now, if you would turn from your sin and trust in the atoning death of Jesus, God will see all of your sins, past, present, and future, paid in full in Christ on the cross, and He imputes unto you the righteous life of Jesus Christ. His robes for mine, right? Making us fit to spend eternity with Him by being able to stand justified before Him because of what He has done for us. This message, that's the message, that's the treasure, that's the ministry that we have of sharing this message with unbelievers, and not just sharing this message with unbelievers, but also the opportunity we have to work out all of the implications of the truths of that message with fellow believers. That's what Paul is talking about. That's the treasure in jars of clay that Paul is talking about in verse 7. This is the greatest message that can be shared. It is the most important event in human history. And it has been entrusted to us. To us, those who are called and compared to clay jars. Clay jars. They were used for common activities. They weren't special. They were, they were often used to carry garbage or even in a time before toilets, human waste. When they were actually used to carry something valuable, the reason someone would do that was in hopes that uh, they, they'd put it in, in case a robber saw it, saw the clay jar, they would look over it and say, oh, that's just something worthless and I don't need to be concerned with it. So even when they were used to carry something valuable, the point was for them to be looked over. Clay jars could break easily. They were disposable and easily replaceable. If a clay jar broke, you could get another one pretty easy. Not a big deal. No one lost sleep over the loss of a clay jar. And that's what Paul is comparing us to. Clay jars. Clay jars holding the most priceless treasure imaginable. If we break, it doesn't matter. It's the treasure that's important. This is what Paul is saying we are like. So, so you see what he's doing here. He's actually embracing the negative things that the false teachers are saying about him. He's embracing them. He's agreeing with them and saying that even though it's negative, even though what they're saying is negative, it's true. He's agreeing that it's true, and he's agreeing that he is unimpressive, and perhaps he's not very good looking, and maybe he's not a good speaker, and that all might be true, but all that does... All those true things do is magnify the power of God and prove even more that it is God who is at work in him and not Paul himself. We should learn something from Paul's willingness to embrace this truth. I remember during this uh, last election cycle during the primaries, fairly, there was a fairly well-known pastor who had been uh, critical of the then uh, candidate, Donald Trump, for, for his moral standing when it came to some of his endorsements of, of certain pornographic companies and his support of casino gambling. The future president responded by calling the pastor a terrible representative of evangelicals and a nasty guy with no heart. And of course, not wanting to miss a chance to take a shot at Donald Trump, CNN's Anderson Cooper had the pastor on that night. Um, and he said, 
Uh, And he said, he let off the interview, he said right away that he wanted to give him a chance to respond to Trump's words and asked him what he thought of Trump's words about him. And to the obvious dismay of Anderson Cooper, the pastor responded, I thought it was great. It's one of the things I agree with Donald Trump on. I am a nasty guy with no heart. In fact, we sing worse things about ourselves in our hymns on Sunday mornings. I'm a wretch in need of God's grace. So I agree with that. That's the reason I'm in need of forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. This is how we need to be also. Why, why do we get so defensive when other people say negative things about us? When we joyfully proclaim many of those same things whenever we share the gospel with someone or sing songs here. I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't defend our character from untrue statements uh, to preserve our gospel witness, but our response to people pointing out general aspects of our unworthiness and our deficiencies should be the same as Paul. We embrace them and, and use it as an avenue to point to the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And it gives us confidence then as we watch God working through our words. Because what would happen is if we think of ourselves as impressive and we think of our maybe apologetic arguments as brilliant and our ability to, to counsel as something that, uh, that both the church and God should be grateful for and that they should be appreciative of us, then, then what's going to happen is we're going to be disappointed when people don't respond to the way that we think that they should. Conversely, however, if we think of ourselves as nothing more than replaceable clay jars, we will never cease to be amazed anytime God uses us to accomplish anything. And every time it happens, it will cause us to give glory and honor to God and cause us to cling to Him even more. So the goal is to show that this all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. That's the goal. And furthermore, it's not just that God can use clay jars and unimpressive people. It's that that is exactly what He does desire to use. That's what He desires to use. It is so frustrating recently um, seeing this reaction, scrolling down Facebook or reading so many social media articles where Christians are so desperately trying to make certain celebrities into faithful Christian heroes. It's, it's a frustrating new trend. And I, and I know the actor Chris Pratt said some nominally Christian-sounding things while accepting his MTV Movie Award, and it was certainly better than most of the stuff you hear at those types of things. But there is good evidence that he is one of the many Americans who believes you can be a Christian without repentance And therefore, living a life that glorifies immorality while giving lip service to God is just fine. And Why do I think that? Because he made that speech after being rewarded by MTV. By by MTV for a career in movies and television uh, in which he has joked about, simulated, and promoted much of this type of sexual immorality. And I know... Chris Pratt is funny, and I enjoy the Lego movie as much as any other parent, but he is not the one who is going to bring about the next great awakening. He's not. We have to stop trying to think that that's how God needs to work, by by Christianizing anyone who says anything relatively biblical and trying trying to appeal to them as the power that's going to win people to Christ and to the church. And it's not going to work. It's not going to work, not only because what what he's talking about isn't biblical Christianity, but also because God uses clay jars. That's how he's always worked. But people will do anything celebrities say. That's That's why they're the ones on commercials. Because they know that celebrities can get you to buy pizza that's not good and and sign up for cell phone plans that don't make sense. 
Celebrities have that kind of power. God uses clay jars so that it is obvious where the power to change people is coming from. It's not us. It's Him. So, the faithful Christian life embraces being nothing. It embraces being nothing. And it is actually excited to be thought of that way because the thing that is most important to us is being useful to Christ. And He uses clay jars. So, watch out if you are the type of person that needs to be well thought of or who needs to be recognized or needs to be known and appreciated or needs to have have people point out your sacrifices. We are replaceable clay jars and that's what we should want to be because God doesn't use anything else. So, embrace that truth and never cease to be amazed by it. Number two, second characteristic, a second characteristic of the faithful Christian life is to be distressed. To be distressed. This has the idea of of, of suffering and of being in pain. It means bad things are going to happen to you. That's what we see in verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So it gives four, I think that you can see four clear sub-points there. It first says that we are afflicted. Afflicted in every way. The word there, uh, that, that word that is translated as afflicted means to be pressed or pressured or, or, or literally to be squeezed into a narrow place. It has the understanding that, um, that could kind of be pictured as a vice being, being squeezed or being compressing. And it says that this is going to happen to us, this type of pressure that we're going to feel is going to happen to us in every way. In every way. Contrary to what you hear in, in like health and wealth gospel type of stuff, Paul says that those who love God and give their lives in service to Him will not escape any of the problems of this life. In fact, every way actually includes some trials that are unique to Christians, which unbelievers will not have to experience. We'll talk about those in a second. That means that the unbelieving world will not recognize Christians by seeing those people whose lives are going great and seem to be having less problems and then saying something like, wow, they, they must, there's something right with them. They're, they really must be something true about Christianity because look how blessed that guy seems like he is. Now that's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. We are blessed by God, but it comes as we endure all of those same pressures and afflictions and are not crushed by them. They never overwhelm us. That's why it says afflicted, but not crushed. We endure. We're afflicted by them, but not crushed by them. The next part of the verse says that we are perplexed. Perplexed. And that that literally means at a loss. At a loss or, or uncertain. That means that, that we don't ever reach a place, not even Christians, where we have it all figured out and understand exactly what God is doing in our lives or the lives around us. We will always live in a world where things happen that we don't understand fully and can't explain fully. Living a faithful Christian life, doing faithful Christian ministry, does not mean that you have all of the answers or that you can explain everything to everyone or that you can somehow see God's divine purpose behind everything or even anything that happens. We won't ever fully know the mind of God. There is tragedy and heartbreaking things going on all around the world and all around our communities and the lives of the people we know and love. And we can venture to guess about why God might be doing something. And I, I think that a Christian is, is well-equipped to um, understand better. And maybe further down the road, we might witness something that points to why a certain tragedy might have taken place. But ultimately, when someone says, why did God do this? Our answer is, I don't know. 
I don't know perfectly anyway. Everyone is perplexed about why certain things happen. And you see this right on the news. Every time that there is a tragedy, every time there's a mass shooting, everyone's trying to figure out why did this happen? It's, it's very important to figure this out. They need to, find, they need to find out the motive of the shooter. They need to find out how he got the guns. They need to find out what happened in his past. They need answers. They can never find ultimate answers to why, so they make everything into, into like a cultural lesson. Here's how we can prevent this from happening again. And they argue about what the answer to that question is, and they hope, they hope, that if they can just do something to prevent it from happening again, then they can give meaning to this tragedy in some sort of way. That they can make it mean something. Because they have no, no answers. And so many of them have so many questions and so much hurt that they are driven to despair. They give up on believing that there's anything of significance beyond this material life. It leads many now to suicide. It leads many of them to, to drug and alcohol addictions. And, and it leads almost all of them to some sort of idolatry and worshiping some sort of earthly pleasure, giving their life to some sort of earthly pleasure that they can indulge in just to get their mind off of those ultimate questions. But this is where things are different for us. Yes, we are perplexed. We don't know exactly why things happen the way they happen all the time. We don't know why a certain person dies and another lives. We don't know why someone suffers with and through a disease. Why finances are so much of an issue for some and not for others. Why the wicked seem to flourish in so many areas while the, the righteous suffer. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And not because we can learn these answers, not because that's coming, not because we have just, and it's not because of what the world does, not because we can just numb ourselves to these issues. And we're not in despair because we have an unshakable confidence in the wisdom, in the love, in the omnipotent power of the one who not only has the answers, but controls the events that cause the questions. We trust that whether or not they make any sense to us, an all-knowing, all-powerful God works all things according to His glory and for the ultimate good of His church. This is why the believer, with the humble understanding of himself, is nothing more than a clay jar anyway, can look into the face of his own impending death or can look at unspeakable tragedy in his life and say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, we are perplexed, yes, but not in despair. And, next part of the verse, we are persecuted. We are persecuted. And this literally means to be uh, pursued or be, to be hunted, to be, to be specifically targeted by someone. People sought Paul out specifically and targeted him for destruction. So there's a, a general sense in which we are afflicted in the same ways everyone is. And then there's this, this special targeting of us that just because we bear the name of Christ and hold to His truth, this is something that's going to happen. And, and I want to kind of make sure we understand this. Maybe if you have been extremely faithful to Christ in your workplace or at school or with your, your neighbors, extremely faithful, you have felt just the tiniest taste of being persecuted in some sort of way that's similar to what Paul is talking about here. But by and large, we have, for the, for the most part, most of us have no idea what it means to be persecuted, really. In fact, like, like we said earlier, one of the reasons that Paul might have been um, not the most attractive man 
is because of how much he physically, physically suffered for the sake of Christ. And he, he catalogs in, in chapter 11 a list of, of some of these sufferings. And one of those things, let's take one of them for example, is, is that he was stoned. It's stoned the way the Bible talks about it, not the way Colorado talks about it. He was stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. People picked up rocks and threw them at him until they thought he was dead. Just think about that for a second. If you've ever been hit by one rock, one stray rock by even the weak arm of your eight-year-old son, it's being repeatedly hit with rocks until they think you're dead. That's going to leave some marks on your body that would cause most people to probably turn their eyes away, especially in a culture without the medical advancements that we have. Okay, none of us has had to deal with that type of persecution. It is getting a little harder to be a Christian in this country, that's for sure, but, but not like that. We have no idea, no idea how, how to deal with this type of persecution yet. We live in a culture, yes, that is mocking God and mocking the, the morality that we are supposed to be holding on to. We run into people who hold to a, a horrific view of sexual morality, and, and they, we know they hate the truth of God's Word when it comes to bear on their lives and what they believe. And we know that's, and we know that's how they feel, and we hear them say all kinds of, of hateful things against those who would oppose this new sexual ethic. And the response of most Christians is to hide from them and talk amongst ourselves about them. We avoid sharing the gospel with them. We, we avoid sharing the gospel with people from other religious backgrounds. We avoid confronting fellow Christians even who are blind to a certain sin that we don't want to deal with in their life. That's not even really avoiding persecution. That's avoiding awkwardness. And Paul, responds, Paul responds to one of the harshest types of persecution, if you remember from Acts. Being drug out of a city, having rocks thrown at him until they believe he's dead, by getting up, and going back into the city to preach. Of such a concern, and, and as Travis is going to get back into the parable of the sower here in the next few weeks, there's such a concern that there are so many people in our country who are the rocky soil that looks good at first, but has no root and falls away as soon as persecution hits. So many in this country that are this type of soil, but have, and, and, they're, and they're all within all of the churches, but they've yet to really be exposed as that type of soil because most of us have never had to deal with any kind of real persecution yet. But, but it is coming. It's going to get stronger and stronger. We're starting to feel targeted and hunted and sniffed out for our beliefs more and more. And, and this should happen to some extent to anyone who's living a faithful Christian life. And our response needs to be just like Paul's when we face persecution. Just think, of, he, he got up after being, after being stoned to almost death, essentially said to himself, well, I'm not dead. Better get back to being faithful in the ministry that Christ has called me to. And he's able to do that because no matter how bad things get, he knows he is not forsaken. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Not cast out, not abandoned, not left alone. This, 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 being forsaken by God will never be the case for us. No matter how bad it gets, even if we are persecuted to the point of death, we are not forsaken. And that understanding, uh, understanding that allows us to endure any and all persecution and keep going. Because ultimately, ultimately the reason why we succumb to persecution is because we fear man more than we fear God. The reason we recoil from that awkward conversation is because in that moment, 
It is more important for you not to be forsaken by that person than to embrace the truth that no matter what happens to me, I will not be forsaken by God. And that is what really matters. Let the truth that the one who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell will not forsake you. Let that truth sink in and take a stand in the midst of persecution. And understand that at least some form of persecution is a sign of faithful Christian living. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Next, next in verse 9, you see that we are struck down. We are struck down. This is the idea of, of taking a beating or being knocked to the ground. Paul is saying that we are continually hit to the point that it topples us, but it never destroys us. The idea that, um, that a couple of the commentaries I read uh, talked about was it's the idea of being knocked down, but not knocked out. In other words, this, this lends to the idea of living a life where it keeps looking like you are losing, but you never lose. Looks like you're losing, but you don't lose. Struck down also means to be, it means primarily actually to be struck down by a weapon. So this could literally mean that we are killed. Paul is saying we, even if we are killed, we are not destroyed. Paul is saying that we live a life recognizing that even if we are killed, it is not a big deal. Because that just takes us to the end of chapter 4. And that truth, we will be with him. A faithful Christian lives their life with no fear of affliction or being perplexed or persecuted or even death because they understand themselves to be nothing more than clay jars that are here to serve the purposes of their master who will preserve them in this life as long as he needs them and then will be faithful to not abandon them and keep them from ultimate destruction when he draws us to himself. So, that's the second characteristic. The, the faithful Christian will be in distress that is marked by affliction and persecution, but will never be overwhelmed by those things. And they will find that they are just used by God to magnify the treasure that are contained in the clay pods that we are. That is what we do. That's what the afflictions cause. Magnifies the treasure more. Number three, a third characteristic of a faithful Christian life is to be dying. To be dying. We see this in verses 10 and 11. He goes on and says, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies in our mortal flesh. So where it says carrying the body, uh, carrying the body in, in our body, the death of Jesus, that's, that's kind of more literally uh, the idea of, of carrying around with us the dying of Jesus or the whole process of, of Jesus dying. This is the idea of, of suffering with Christ or suffering in our connection to Him. So, so these false teachers we're pointing to Paul and saying he suffers because God is punishing him for something he is doing. That's what they're saying about him. And Paul is saying, no, we suffer because we have our identity in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is our example in suffering for the sake of others. Jesus said, and we know this, that a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. And if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. We should expect the same treatment that Jesus received and should not shrink back from living sacrificially as Jesus did. But Paul is saying that as we are content to suffer for the sake of Christ and to live a life that is actually dying daily for his sake and for the sake of the church, it does the work of manifesting the life of Jesus through us. In verse 11, if you look at that, verse 11 is essentially repeating the truth in verse 10. Paul is doing this for emphasis. 
He, again, is strongly opposing the false teaching that is so prevalent in the church and that his opponents there are teaching. The teaching that suffering is a sign of God's punishment or displeasure or, or that it's something you even need to be avoiding at all costs. He says emphatically that suffering for the Christian is a sign of identification with Christ. And it has the purpose of demonstrating the power of Christ in you. Again, and he essentially repeats it to make it clear because this is not how we, natural, we naturally think. We, we're prone to, prone to think, as, as remember, as John Street spoke to us powerfully a couple of weeks ago, that we see suffering in our life and we see it as God punishing us for something. And as, as we ask that question, why am I suffering? Why, when I try to live faithfully, does it look and feel like I'm dying? Because that's coming into our mind. I, I'm, I, I'm living a life that just looks like a slow death. And Paul emphatically refutes that type of thinking, that type of, of false teaching by saying, living a life of suffering allows the life of Christ to be manifest in you. And he says it twice. Living, the life, living a life of suffering allows the life of Christ to be manifest in you. So if someone's about to... Pro, it's like he says it twice, like someone's going to protest the first time he says it, and then he repeats it so they know. Allows the life of Christ to be manifest in you. This is what we want, right? We want the life of Christ to be what people see in us. That's the goal. We want to reflect Jesus to the world. We want people to see Jesus through us. That, isn't that what we pray for? Isn't that what you're asking God to do with your life? In the song where we God, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Are we not asking Him to use us to show Jesus to the world? Do it through us. But that's what we want. Well, this is how He does it. People see Jesus best through us as we suffer well and sacrifice for Him and for them. They see a life that can only be explained then by the presence of Christ and by the power of God. So This is what God does. The faithful Christian life is one of being a disregarded clay jar, replaceable, not worthy of being used to do anything good, only having value because of the service that it performs. A clay jar put under all forms of distress and affliction, but being kept by the power of God from completely crumbling, living a life of gratefulness, recognizing that there isn't anything in us worthy of being saved from destruction. So we are willing to suffer and to sacrifice if it means that others can only see the treasure that is the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we live a faithful Christian life, doing faithful Christian ministry that is marked by these last three characteristics, we see it all lead to this, this fourth characteristic of a faithful Christian life. We will see others developing. Developing or maturing or growing or, or being fruitful. Essentially, we will see fruit. This is what verse 12 says. That little verse there at the end. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is, this is God's means of producing effective, disciple-making Christians. Notice what he says. It's such an odd phrase. Death is at work in us. Death is at work in us. That, that word work, that means to be active to actively produce. That, that's the opposite of what death is supposed to do. That's not how we think of death. Death is the cessation of activity and production. But Paul is saying something different about it. All of that negative-sounding stuff, this daily dying, what that's doing is actively producing life 
in others. This is essential. This is essential for you to be a faithful disciple-making minister of the Word of God. You, You must live a life that is characterized by this daily dying That must happen if you're going to be used in the work of producing life in others. That's the cost. This is God's way of changing people. This is the God's, God's way of using us to change people. His way of making disciples. This is so important. This is so important because if your plan is to serve God in a way that allows you to get others to think highly of you or to serve God in a way that that bypasses affliction or persecution or suffering, if that's your plan, or, or if you have a plan that allows you to avoid sacrifice and the call to die to yourself every day, if you have some sort of plan to serve God that involves bypassing all of that, then what you are going to produce are disciples that look a lot like the world. You're going to get the type of so-called Christians that run rampant in this country. Those who live for themselves and live for this life and have no problem compromising, have no fear of God, fully confident that they can essentially live for themselves and still have Jesus tacked on. We, we see people running, along, running around in our country like this, in the churches in our country, all, all of the, the 80% or whatever they claim to be Christians, and we wonder, how did that happen? Where, why are they like this? Where did that come from? It comes from this. It comes from, it comes from people who are trying to disciple others by bypassing all of this stuff that God promises us we're going to experience if we faithfully serve Him. So-called disciples we see that will quickly fold, that will compromise, that will abandon the the faith once for all delivered to the saints, they'll abandon it at the first sign of hardship or persecution, all while, while still believing that they are just fine because after all, they are something special, something worth dying for. In short, you will at best produce people who are more deceived than ever about where they stand. If we are going to be a church that longs to be used by God to produce faithful, selfless disciples who seek God's glory and the growth of His church above all else, then we will seek to be those who are disregarded, who desire to be thought little of in order to magnify the precious treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will not run from distress, from trials, from persecutions and hardships. We will embrace them as opportunities to, to display the all-surpassing power of God in our lives. And we will be willing to be counted with Paul as those dying daily, sacrificing our lives so that the life of Jesus might be seen through us. And... If that is how our lives are characterized, we can be confident that God will use us to produce real disciples and that real fruit will be developing in our lives and theirs as well. So as our church grows in faithful ministry to one another and faithful evangelism to those outside, let us, as Paul says, not lose heart and let's embrace this description what faithful ministry looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We desperately need it because passages like this run so contradictory to the way that we think. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a church that embraces these truths that we would be in a constant state of amazement and your willingness to use disposable clay jars like ourselves. God, I pray that, that, uh, 
the gospel would be so magnified in this church that everyone in here, that all of the members of Grace Church will live a life continually thinking less and less of themselves and more and more of you. Father, I pray that we would embrace embrace this call, embrace this ministry, and as things get difficult, that, that you would use each other, that you would use one another in this church to minister to one another, to come alongside each other, to, to encourage each other, to keep going. No matter how hard the affliction gets, no matter how intense the persecution may become, that we will be a church that stands firm on these truths and encourages one another to keep going in them. In Jesus' name, amen.